Welcome to Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. This is episode 112. I am Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis, sitting in the captain's chair again. This is kind of a continuation of the last episode, folks. Uh, we did uh, quotations from the great Ernest Hemingway uh, last time. Kind of as a, meant to be a setup, I suppose, for this episode. This is meant to be kind of like the crescendo of our two-episode Hemingway Palooza? That's probably not unfair. We did our Shatner Palooza back in March, and that was a big dog thing. Uh, but we're going to talk about Ernest Hemingway today. One of my heroes, uh, probably, the, in my opinion, one of the greatest writers that ever has walked the planet. And I think you won't get any argument about that from anybody. Everybody recognizes that he is uh, one of the greatest folks. If you, uh, We love Ken Burns around here, of course. He's one of our favorite guys, too. And uh, as we record this, uh, he did a th- uh, three part uh, special, about six hours on Hemingway, just a few months ago on PBS, and it was, you know, man, it was like a dream come true for me, because I discovered Hemingway, you know, we've all known Hemingway, but I really discovered him about two years ago, and I realized when I started my writing, uh, I don't want to say career, but, you know, getting into more of that, the more you realize that you're supposed to emulate those who have done it well, and his is the name that always everybody comes back to. Uh, They say in the Ken Burns documentary that Hemingway didn't put the furniture in the room, but he rearranged it in such a way that every writer who has come after him has to deal with that setup. He's changed so much, and we'll talk a little bit about what that means, but he was one of the first American superstar authors, and Mm -hmm. he has stayed the test of time. He really has. People still read him today. Uh, And that's not just because he's so accessible and so easy to read, because he is, but because the man was just so amazingly gifted. Let me ask you a question, because, uh, Francis, you know, I've not really read a, a much Hemingway, so I, and, which is one of those things that you're almost embarrassed to admit. Uh, but I admit it. And uh, one of the things that you, you commented that, uh, about the, re- uh, the... Ken Burns said that he rearranged the furniture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have a context for that other than asking this question. Mm-hmm. So, prior to the 20th century, a lot of uh, fiction, a lot of writing period, was very verbose, mm-hmm. flowery. Yep. You're, na- you're nailing it. Uh, That's right. It was uh, very convoluted. It was... It was, as, it was as if St. Paul were writing all fiction. <laughs> That's a very good way of putting it. I mean, I love me some St. Paul in, in, in the Bible, but he is the most complex writer in the Bible. Oh, yeah. Uh, his, uh, his syntax and grammar sucks by modern standards. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't use uh, punctuation, and it shows. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's very similar to, uh, if you want to go back to, say, Emerson or even Thoreau, if you read some of those early folks, or uh, James Fenimore Cooper, mm-hmm. which was very much an action-oriented type thing, and yet he's still wrote that way. Melville's a great example. Very complex, very deep, very th- uh, thematic and all that stuff like that. Very unrealistic in many ways. Twain tees a lot of this up and brings in the realism of things. Yes. So there's a, there's a there's that precursor of that people realize. Which is about. why I think that he, he uh, Hemingway gives so much credit to Twain for yes. the American uh, novel. That's right because it's that's what that's the room yes. that that Hemingway is working out of and but Hemingway his style is it's very journalistic. But it's because he was a journalist. He was a journalist first, first, and that's where he starts this idea. And if you read Hemingway, 
It's short declarative sentences. Uh, he is probably the, I would guess, this is where you're going with this, and this is a good way to put it. He was one of the first American authors, writers, mm-hmm. to master the what is now a maxim of all writing. Right. Show, don't tell. That's that's a lot of it right there. But do it in as few words as possible. Well, yes. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Show, that's most, what, most of the iceberg is below the surface. I'm glad yes. you brought that up. That's that's one of his... Mm-hmm. A, that's the idea behind the idea. Hemingway is... He's going to show you part of the iceberg. The rest of it, you've got to figure out. It's underneath. That's right. right, and that's what show show don't tell means. Yeah, you know, show is uh, is not describing every detail in the room. That's right. what telling is. That's right. Like if you know, if I write something that says that uh, you know Joe laughed, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to you know, a different way of phrasing it, you know, that would be. It's probably not a good example, but you know. It's just it's how you go about the writing in a way that is clear mm-hmm. without using more words. That's right. It's you very know? minimalistic. And you don't need to, to, to cover the texture of the drapes. That's correct. In a room. You right. don't even need to tell that there are drapes in the room unless it's germane to the story. Right. It's, it's very, I mean, it, it's taking uh, all those, I mean, it, it, he's still a very sensualistic writer. He's not writing what they call in a white room where you have no idea what the place around you looks like. You get all that, but you get it from a very small amount of detail written unbelievably tight. I mean, and uh, Stephen King is famous for his uh, detesting of adverbs. Hemingway Hemingway doesn't do much of that to begin with because they're extraneous. Uh, He has no dialogue tags when there's only two people in a room. That was unheard of before that, and yet it's the standard now. Right. Uh, As a matter of fact, I was just reading an article uh, talking about dialogue tags and when to use... Because you could do blah, 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 said Mary. Blah, 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 said Joe. Blah, 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 said Mary. And back and forth. There's a great example in the writing about how to... When to use them and when not to. Because when you have two people... You know, you could have an entire conversation and only say who the first two seds are. That's right. But then that gets very confusing as it, well. It can be, and if you did the, so, a master like Hemingway knew when to drop one in yes. to keep you to keep you oriented, but the the dialogue goes so fast and so much is conveyed just because he's doing it very well. He's dropping those pieces of that iceberg down there at the top, and it it in it somehow. In, in imagine your imagination is is fired by that, and you're filling in all this stuff. It's the, it's the quintessential active reading. It didn't you didn't when you were told everything before? You didn't have to do that. You just kind of blew, blew right through it, and it, oh, wasn't that nice? He's actually engaging the thought processes, and he was a master at it. Uh, especially as you read some of his really really good works. We'll talk about those in a second. Uh, to well, bring his, that through, his novel, you know, he, he wrote. Novels, stories that were set in times that were common to the reader. That's so, correct. Yes. If I'm writing a, a science fiction fantasy novel, I'm going to have to put more descriptions in. Mm-hmm. It, world building. That's what, is say, what it yeah, is. World building is what it is. Yeah. Uh, and every, while every story and novel has some degree of that, the more common the setting to the reader, the less world building you have to do. You know, if I want to say that somebody got into a, a, a truck and went down the road, I don't have to say what year and uh, brand and model and how many doors were in the truck and whether it had a camper on it. 
Yeah, the the world is implicit to the reader. That's exactly. Right. Hemingway wouldn't give you all that stuff unless it was relevant. Yeah. Unless it now, the relevant. interesting thing will be, uh, now granted we won't be around for this, but in 150, 200 years, how well will his stories last? Because some of what he wrote will not be implicit to the reader. You're <laughs> well, exactly right. You know? uh, so well, that'd be, it's an interesting thing. There's a, but there's a universal quality to his writing, and if you read him closely, you'll pick this up. It's, well, is it universal because... It was universal for them? Yeah, because it's still universal for our context. You know, And I'm not, I'm not denigrating the style in that, of course, in that no, sense. Yeah, that's right. It's just an observation that well, that's kind of the it works for us. Yeah. Uh, his style will always be around. It really <laughs> works so well. The content of what he, the subject matter he talks about, well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, I think that you will find that, uh, for example, my personal favorite of his, and I've got a copy of it right here the, uh, in the Hemingway Library edition, of, is The Sun Also Rises. Uh, it was written in the 20s. It's kind of, it's what gave rise to the term The Lost Generation. We talked about this a little bit last episode. It's about this malaise that comes over the post-World War I generation that's living in Paris, it's semi-autobiographical in many respects. Uh, uh, the, the characters that are in here, he's one of he's the, he's Jake, the main character. He's sort of kind of him, uh, and uh, and uh, Lady Brett, she's sort of kind of the woman that he was kind of working with there. So it it's got a lot to that. And it kind of encapsulates what was going on at that time, but it's still universal enough that even a hundred years well, later, the themes can be universal. Exactly. Yes. That's what that's what keeps it. That's what keeps I'm, people I'm, still reading this book. Yeah, what, I, what I'm referring to is you know the stuff that you that he doesn't have to put in, you know, mm-hmm. like the truck. Yeah, you know, will people still even be driving trucks in 200 years? You know, for mm-hmm. that to make sense. That's, uh, there's some know, truth to that. Yeah. You know, we can uh, see a we can read a novel that's set in the 1800s. Now, if it was written in the 1800s, it's probably going to have a whole lot of that descriptive stuff in it uh, that we might not well, want in it today. But Melville's probably a good example. He puts all the whaling information in the sea right. that you need in there. Well, now that's, that's different. That's a need. That's correct. It's because a, not everybody need. has that context. So, you know, the everyday... Uh, I'm just, it's just, just a thought that occurred to me. How much of the everyday that is now uh, is going to be relevant in 200 years? My kids reading something like Hemingway, they're going to look at that and think, oh my God, that must have very, been a very boring time. There's no... I mean, there's some radio, but there's no internet, there's no television, there's no gaming, there's no cell phones, you know, which is makes up their their, their entire worldview, world. Which kind of saddens me in many ways. Because, oh, it's very sad. Yeah, because when the bill you, comes. you should be... Oh, <laughs> but, you know, so many of those things that uh, that you should see in that, that they should... Be, my son is right now reading. The reason the Farewell to Arms is not here on my desk with us, here as we record in, uh, in the Baxter building, uh, is because my son's reading it. Uh, and he's got it over in the other room, and uh, he's fascinated by, and he's you know the millennial generation, he's twenty, and he's fascinated by the prose. He's fascinated by the story. Uh, Farewell to Arms is probably his best work. It was certainly his biggest commercial success. It was his technically his which third, is kind of sad because that came relatively early. Relatively early. It was his. Yeah. It was his technically his third novel. In many respects, his second. The first one, Torrance of Spring, almost doesn't count. Uh, it just kind of got out there, and it never really... He wasn't Hemingway then. It was The Sun Also Rises that boom. He was just earning. Yeah, he was just earning. Boom! That's where he it became a multi-gazillion seller. Uh, in fact, he even dedicated it to his first wife and turned over all the rights to her. 
so that way they would always be taken care of because mm-hmm. that it still continues to sell yeah. uh, even today. But Farewell to Arms is the big one, and it's tied directly to his experience in World War One. Yeah. Because in many respects, yet again, that character there is him as well. He yeah. is wounded. Uh, he has an affair with a woman he fought, his nurse falls in love with, which Hemingway did that very same thing. Uh, it ended badly. No. Uh, in real life, she just kind of went and got married on him, and you know he was just devastated with all that. Whereas, well, the, that's ending badly from his point of it view. It is, but if you read the novel, I don't want to spoil it if you haven't read it. Yeah, it's, it's there's, there's, it's a, tra- okay. there's it's a, a tragic while. ending. Okay, that's, yeah. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, uh, and that's just kind, and that's one of the reasons. And he ends it kind of right after that. He just kind of, and he walk after the tragic ending happens. He just kind of walks out the street and goes off. And of course, people go, they lose their minds over this stuff. You don't do that in the in the twenties. Uh, but that's that's something that's been brought out when life is short and war is hell. <clears throat> that's the experience that you work with. That's what resonated. That's one of the reasons Farewell to Arms, hey, it's, oh God, it's so well written. And it's very personal. And that's not something they were used to before. You didn't get a lot of that out there. Not there's exceptions, of course. Sun also rises the same way. And in many respects, Hemingway stole from his own life which, for many people, that's absolute recipe for disaster and boredom <laughs> because most people don't live the life that Hemingway lived. Right. That That is one of the reasons why, to me, he's so fascinating. Uh, you know, even modern writers today that are great writers really don't live fascinating lives. No, they spend their time really writing books. Yeah. At best. Uh, you know, I always like to talk about King because I think he's one of the, the greatest writers, even though the... You know, snobby literature folks look their look down on him, but that's mainly because you know he's so far so much more successful than they are. Oh yeah, he goes over there. Uh, but uh, he's uh, also uh, become an incredible writer. Oh yeah. And you know, as we said in the last episode, and we like to talk about craft is is, is such a big deal. Yeah. yeah, it's everything. And you know, even he does not live a a fantastical life. Now he's done some really great things, but it's mainly because his writing has allowed him to. Yeah. Like, he's been in a band with several other writers, you know, relatively famous people. He still does that. Uh, you know, but his life is actually pretty damn simple compared to Hemingway. Yeah, he's been married to the same woman for all this time. Yes. And, uh, that's just, she's, she's put up with him. She's put with, you know, which is, you know, kind of different from Hemingway who had four wives. Four wives. Yeah, so, let me almost do that a little bit. So, Hemingway kind of, he's a follow-on, not just to Twain, but to a degree to, to someone like Roosevelt, who also had this, you know, incredible full life of charging up San Juan Hill and, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, exploring the Amazon, African safaris, the whole bit. This is also very much Hemingway's life. He's in the war. Uh, he's an ambulance driver, living in Paris as a expatriate type journalist exile yeah. in this fascinating circle of people um, and then also living all over the place from Idaho to Cuba yeah. African safaris two plane crashes well and he's also as a correspondent which enabled him to do some of this yes. that's why he was in Paris that's how, he, that's how he participates in the Spanish Civil War which was huge huge yeah, formation yeah. for him that's where for whom the bell tolls that was that experience Put forth yet one of his one of his other yes. great great novels uh, that he wrote. Uh, Just like with Orwell, he's a contemporary of Orwell. He's mm-hmm. a contemporary of Faulkner. This is their experience. Um, so there's two things I want to tease out for you, Francis. I want you to do yeah. for me. Talk a little bit more about what Lost Generation means. Oh, 
Um, and then I, I great want idea, you, great point. Yeah. yeah, and I want you to then, as I always do, especially with your heroes, <laughs> I want you to push why is a personal hero to you? Oh well, I mean. I'll answer the second question first. Uh, no, no, do, do the first question. Okay. Do the, yeah, because yeah, right, right. Lost Generation is an important context. Yeah. It is in this interwar period. It is uh, mostly for from his work's perspective. The Lost Generation is most clearly encapsulated in the Sun Also Rises. That's that's kind of that's the the two are linked together yeah. almost as if they're biologically the same. Uh, Farewell to Arms, somewhat, but that's a little bit earlier than that. It, it's yeah. kind of like what produces the Lost Generation. But then here's, and this is, I'm glad you brought that up because this kind of gets to that universal aspect that we talk about here. After World War One, which has been forgotten for us, overshadowed by World War Two, because we knew that our grandparents mm-hmm. were the surviving generation of that, but World War One was lost to us. The technological world, uh, the the old world of everything is a grand display. War is this gentleman's game. That's just from that context. That preeminent, that the, the, the colonialism that went on, uh, the the British Empire, the American Great White Fleet, uh, all this world that they had that had culminated into this powder keg has exploded, and it's gone. It's totally gone. We don't yes. think that way anymore. It's uh, destroyed everything they knew. Yeah, exactly. Not just the people, not just the countries, but their entire philosophy on the world around and, them. Yeah, I mean, it's industrialized death. Exactly. And that's all... It was unsustainable, but they didn't realize that. And, that's, and this is all destroyed. Yeah. So everything they were taught about the way the world should be, you know, you we are we are civilizing the rest of the world with our colonialism. That's gone. Uh, our system of government is important, and we will impose that upon others. That's gone. Uh, our, well, well, I mean, it's it's some things die slower than others. But yes, I mean, the, what they have known, autocracies destroyed. Correct. Um, the concept the, the, of democracy is no longer seen as a ridiculous experiment. Uh, in fact, it's become the way things are supposed to be. Um, working for the good of all people was unheard of before. It was only the elites, uh, and and there is kind of almost like a revolution yes. that comes at, yes. the, at the at the basic level. Yeah. I'm thinking all that we knew is gone. We don't know what this world is supposed to be because we know it's got death, yeah. lots and lots of There's death. This this thing that we invested in this this That's technology right. and this advancement. Has led us only to destroy ourselves. And nationalism it's, too. Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a big thing there. Right. Both, it, both empire and nationalism, yeah. same thing. And, and we've talked about this before. That yeah. today we see apocalyptic, meaning nuclear. Yeah. But to them, they lived in apocalypse. Correct. That's right. Where everything changed, and those who survived have an enormous amount of PTSD. Mm-hmm. Whether that's not just the soldiers either. You know, those that stayed at home, their family structures are, are destroyed. Dad's it's not a different home. kind of PTSD. It's, it's correct. I'm speaking broadly here, uh, but they all experience traumas at some level, and are and after that's over, are having to find out who the hell is this world? What the hell yeah. is this world that I live in? The whole world searching for meaning. That's correct. Very much so. And that's that's what the lost generation or those who came of age after World War One. That came into this. That a lot of them are survivors of it, like Hemingway. They said nothing matters anymore. You would think there would, and that's one of the reasons that you know the idea of nihilism uh, 
gives comes back again. Yeah. It was not new for them, but there's a certain there's a certain malaise that uh, that comes from that thing. Well, nothing else matters. You know, I think that's interesting because if you look at similar events, I don't know if that's always the response. That's true. Yeah. I would so agree. I want to juxtapose that uh, with the American version of this because we're talking about what is essentially a European thing yeah. not mm-hmm. an American thing so because yeah. uh, things in America didn't really change other than we were now really and truly I mean we were with the feet of Spain 20 years yeah. prior but now we really are well a world, world power, power. Yeah. we hold the mortgage on everything and we yes yes uh, but you know you look the closest thing that you could come to this kind of a, an event would be the American Civil War, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, especially in the South, but even quite a bit in the North because mm-hmm. things change there as well, uh, just not to the same degree. But uh, uh, you know, the American response after the American Civil War was, especially in the South, was all right. Things have changed. I'm just going to leave. I'm going out west. Yeah. There's, there's a huge amount of there's that, a yes. huge migration to the West. The American Civil War was the impetus to finish the conquest of the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't mean that necessarily in a, a, a way of, negative a, a, way. A way of starting a new life. Yeah, it's a way of starting a new yeah, because life. Because the old one is gone. And but it was done like with what optimism. was replaced. Yeah, we don't like what, was, what replaced it. So rather than deal with trying, trying to deal with that where we were, where there's all these reminders, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we struck off for what is essentially... Uh, Wilderness, mm-hmm. uh, and built something new out there, under the strictures of the new reality. Right. Uh, it was an expression of American optimism, even though the South came from this very horrible place of slavery mm-hmm. and was defeated in a not dissimilar way to right. Nazi Germany in, right. in World War War. Not that, not that quite that badly because it wasn't as uh, widespread. Although Atlanta and Richmond would probably beg to differ, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it, you're talking about all of Germany versus a few of the major cities, but their entire way of life was totally upended, uh, even down to the you know poor white farmers who mm-hmm. owned very few, if any, slaves, and so so many of them, including former slaves, mm-hmm. went west. That's what a lot of people don't know that much about. Is, you know, there's a lot of black cowboys, mm-hmm. not just white guys. Um, so I just find it, this is one of those things that is fascinating in juxtaposition to me. Yeah. The the difference in how one continent versus the other responded. There was nowhere to go. There was no no way to rebuild. Well, that's right. It was a life. world war. All of a sudden, the, there was there was no outlet like the West well, was for Americans. Know, Americans, you know, by the time World War One is over, the American West is largely done as a western setting yeah it's, it's, yeah it's it's been it's been integrated I mean, into the era you know we've got all 48 states two years before uh the world war ii start or world war one starts so you know there's not even creating new states to be done yeah there. all the territory are no longer yeah. territories so it's this you're right francis it is it's hard for us in a modern sense to wrap our brains around what people were going through in that post World War One world, but it was very much a, you know, a devastation, a seeking the future. What's it going to be like? 
-hmm. it's PTSD, it's depression, it's um, a searching for what did we just do? All the things that we believed in Led us and fought for. Yeah, and has have led us to the apocalypse. That's right. Yeah, essentially Um, they discovered that they were false. So, so is the difference between the American Civil War and World War One a matter of empty territory? I mean, the response of size, maybe. No, I I think there is a difference in outlook. So that's what that's what I'm driving. I think so. There's a modernistic approach that was in its infancy with the Civil War, but had come to full flower by the time World War I happened. I think there's a technology, a technological aspect to this. Uh, and I think this was a, a political system that was... It was easy to see the South and its errors, in the, but their political system was essentially the same. It just had a quality. This was two different political systems here. Authoritarianism well, that, versus true. democracy. And... And we recognize that, yes, authoritarianism was bad, but democracy was equally as bad because they killed as many people, too. I mean, uh, well, it kind of takes it above the whole... Po- it's, it's outside politics anymore because there's no winners sure. yeah. in, in World War One. Yeah. whereas in North and South, there's an absolute winner well, and, absolute, absolute, yeah. and an absolute loser. And, and, and again, I, I think there is a difference in the American character because there yes. is, so that's, that's there is an time. idea of, okay, we can recover. There's... There's a, we can become better. You know, it's that it's kind of that individualistic outlook that Americans yeah, tend that, to have. Yeah, that searching quality that yes. Amer- you gotta who are Americans? People who left the old world and said, "I'm brave enough to start over." Right. The people still in Europe, and this is not to run them down, but it's it's a different outlook of we don't know how to start over. Because we've never had to. We've never had to. We but had Americans this, we had have this done whole it. history behind Americans us that we cling to, yeah. and they loved, and it was part of their and it, it incorporated well, so much into part that of their character. Centuries old. That's exactly mm-hmm. it. You know, and and, and all of a sudden we're almost two hundred. We're only what two hundred and fifty years old in a couple of years as a country. Yeah, our oldest cities are you know maybe a hundred years older than that mm-hmm. as real cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even some of those are just small settlements. Right. Uh, you know, at, at that yeah. time. If they even existed, uh, so you know maybe part of that really is a place to go. Yeah, and all those underpinnings have been pulled out from underneath of yeah. them, uh, both politically and literally in many respects. So, do you think that by spending all this time in Europe, because you know he's a foreign, he's he's been over there for World War One, he, mm-hmm. he was over there uh, driving an ambulance in Italy, mm-hmm. uh, he, he spends all that spends all that time there, which is I'm sure is why he was sent there as a correspondent. Did he, did he come home between the war and then being in Paris? Uh, yes, he did. He okay. went back and forth because that's okay. how he, that's how he got to work with the Toronto Star. Okay, and, so and, and of course, he, and he got uh, he gets married during that period of time, and they ha- they have their first child, and uh, but that all comes back in. But then he goes to Paris during that time. I don't think he intended to do that, but he loved it so much he would go back there later. Mm-hmm. Sure, uh, it was once it kind of a, it kind of happens. So the the where I'm going with that is that you know. Even though he's an American, he's obviously got that individualistic very much so uh, streak in that that what we would recognize as a quintessential American from a perhaps from a, as a as a Teddy Roosevelt kind of a thing. Yep. Uh, because he spends all that time, which is a very formative time in the sense that it is post-war and figuring out how because everybody who goes to war has to figure out how to deal with that. I've never been to war, but I understand that much at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and because maybe because he's doing that in a place where everybody else has no idea what to do because they don't have the same background as an American would, maybe that influences him more than being an American. I think so, and only because he was wounded himself, right? Significantly over there. I mean, there was an idealism that came with him because he joined the ambulance corps long before America was in war, right? You know, he was working for the Italians. Uh, and all this changes to the point where this jadedism about what the hell just happened and why does it matter, the fact that he's wounded has a lot to do with, that's where Fairwater Arms comes from, uh, and also uh, The Sun Also Rises, because in that, now, Hemingway was not rendered impotent by his wounds, but the main character of The Sun Also Rises, Jake, which is his avatar you might say yeah his alter ego his alter ego here he is and that was was Hemingway's most brilliant teeny mini additions but by just making that one character change everything that this character sees is therefore irrelevant because he can't do it because the woman you know Lady Brett that's part of this he's he has her but he can never have her she's attainable and yet never attainable and she doesn't herself care. She wants them all, but then she also wants none, and that's and that's part of the thing that goes with that. In there, they're they're just well, that's a powerful theme. It yeah, is especially for men, rudderless. Yeah. And that and that that's oh, and that impotence yeah. is kind of the core thing at the middle of all this. Realizing none of this matters, and that's why it, it's been well, said. The book in a way, that's a very nothing. sad statement in of itself. Very much. Oh yeah. If you can't screw it. Nothing matters. Well, that's. Kind of way, well, well, it, which it, I understand that. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I understand that you theme. Can never definitely. truly love as he wishes to love. Well, as anybody who, I mean, you know, sex is not just a physical thing. No, no. Uh, maybe for men it mostly is, but you know, wind blows and we get excited. But it, it ties to your whole notion of your self worth. It oh, does. Absolutely. It ties your notion of self worth, and it does tie to. Uh, a, a, a metaphysical self-worth because it is how we participate in creation. That's right. And uh, we can with know, the creator. And that can never happen in Jake's case. Yes. And worse, is he's so in love with this woman. Uh, and she loves him. They say this all the time throughout the thing. But they can never do anything with it. And him. a woman who says to a man who can't get it up that that doesn't matter is just telling him that you don't matter. It really is, even though she means well. Right, because women approach again. This is over generalization, but it's a generalization, so it is yes, generally true. Sex for women is at least, if not twice, three times, ten times as much mental and emotional as it is physical. It's relational. Yeah. Whereas for us, it is absolutely relational. But again. You know, wind blows the wrong way, and well, you know we're biology ready. for us is kind of the volumes turned way up in many respects. Yeah, and that's and uh, and Lady Brett knows this, uh, and but she's willing to you know screw this young bullfighter because he's got a nice butt, and she does this you know and he and not you know, there's no ending to spoil. She when it all goes right, Jake's the one she calls to come get her. And that's kind of how the book ends. It's, you know, and he's saying you know wouldn't it be great if life were better than this. And it's, it's, it's a very sad type thing, but it... So has, does Jake go get her? Well, yeah, absolutely he goes get her. See, that's looks like... Hmm, See, that, that's no, no. He's on the beach, and she calls. And, you know, and she says, you know, it's kind of over. Can you come, you know, he's got to go to Barcelona and get her. And, you know, she stayed in a hotel room. He goes in there, and, you know, because yeah, she's basically robbed the cradle. I mean, he was of age, but this young bullfighter that they saw, 
Uh, he's you know half her age. He misses Robin. She misses Ro- Mrs. Robinson in him. many respects. That's correct, like that. And uh, she actually ruins the boy's career in many respects because he's not supposed to be doing this. Uh, it, it, the word gets out that he's doing it, and his reputation suffers uh, because in the Spanish culture, that's a that's a thing. It's a, he's supposed to be devoted to this craft, but also because while he's messing with her, he ain't fighting the bulls like he was. Yeah, I was gonna say this is this There's is like the, uh, uh, Mick telling uh, uh, Rocky. You know, stay away from the women because you know it robs your legs. Well, that's that's kind of that's what that's a, there's a lot of that to that, and uh, oh, it's just a fascinating study uh, of all. And, and I'm just giving you two of the characters, three of the characters in that book. Yeah, uh, it's if if you if for our listeners, if you want to dip your toe into Hemingway, and I'm kind of probably this is probably early in our episode to talk about this, but I will oh, say no, I don't think we're early in the episode anymore. That's right. <laughs> but I would recommend there's there's four books, four of his novels now. Short stories are great. There are plenty of collections in them. If you like to read short stories, Snows from Kilimanjaro is one of the very best. There's many, many others. But if you like the so novels... Don't give them four. Give them one. I'm not, I'm, okay, I'm, okay, I'm, okay. I am. I'm just going to say, I'm just going to list the four, but I'm going to say, here's the one you want. Uh, the, the four biggies he has, of course, is Farewell to Arms. We've talked about it. Sun Also Rises. We've talked about it. For Whom the Bell Tolls. Very huge. And his later work, uh, The Old Man and the Sea, which was much, much later. It was kind of his last hurrah. Any of those would be good. I recommend, personally, The Sun Also Rises, which we've been talking about. That's the one to start with. It's not long at all. And it really kind of lays down everything that came after. You know, that's a relative term. It really is. Because, you know, when I think of a long novel, I think Stephen King long. Somebody else might think, you know, 300 pages is a long novel. Oh, 300 right. pages, you know, things just getting started. Well, yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, I mean, sitting here, got the book in my hand. I can tell you how many pages the darn thing is. Because I look at that, and I would not think that's a long novel, but I know that other people would look at that and think, oh, yeah, that's a well, big book. 290 pages, uh, and, uh, which is, you Well, know. here, here, let's, uh, let's pause for a minute, because I think we did a good job right there, Francis, with talking about the lost generation and what that means, and, and grasping this idea of a Europe adrift, mm-hmm. and... You know, a cultural, the, the cultural center of the universe adrift right. after the war. Mm-hmm. So then I want you to, to then, we'll do the whole deal about why is a personal hero to you. But I think it's time for bourbon break. Yeah, yes, no, we bourbon gotta, break. we got to do that here. And uh, we've actually cracked a new bourbon this yes. go-around that we're all sharing. It's Russell's Reserve. We talked about it a little bit last uh, last time, but we said we would get to it right away, and we are. Uh, ten years old, this bad boy. Uh, uh, it's got a good, rich color, doesn't it? Though mm-hmm. I mean, it looks so good in the bottle, uh, and we're we're each we're each kind of sipping on it here, uh, drinking a little bit of it uh, as we go. Uh, it's got a nice a nice mouth back of the mouth burn. I thought. Yep. Uh, it doesn't. It's not an esophageal burn or a nasal burn in any ways. And when we say burn, that's a good thing. Yeah. Right. It's that. Yeah. You want to call it the the heat, the the tingle, whatever. But yeah, it's it's and that there's a little sweetness, just a tad of sweetness after the fact in the mouth and on the lips. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that. Uh, sometimes you get those harsh, harsh burns. This is not that at all. No, it's not. This is very not harsh. mild, very uh, smooth. It that first bite mm-hmm. yeah, is, is a bit it's um, kind of a pop, pop. Yeah, because it's not harsh, harsh the way I would think of some. Um, but it's got a, 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 it hits you quick, but it is, you know, overall it's very mild and it's got a slow move down your throat yep. and into your stomach. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not intense 
uh, you know, it's not it's not an angel's envy kind of a, uh, a burn that hits you in the, mm-hmm. the esophagus and the, and the stomach. Uh, it's a little bit more subtle than that, but a, a similar movement, I guess would be a good way to put it. A little citrusy. Hmm. I hadn't considered that, but you're right. It does now that you now that you've articulated the word. I would have I would have never put, picked that out of the air. But you're exactly right. It does have that. Yeah, just Look at a, you and your taste buds. I tell you, you I'm know. telling you, you got to stop drinking soft drinks. Well, this is true. Yeah, and uh, the yeah. acid in them and the sweetness uh, ruins your palate, man. You she, you sound like Robert Picard. Yeah, ruins your palate, Jean Luc. No, I'm just. I don't be good luck with that. I I don't know that I can give that up. I guess I could, but uh, try, try. There is no try. try. That's right. Do, do or, or do, do not. not. That's correct. Put it, Thank put you, it, Yoda. Put an effort into it. A Hemingway effort to really live, to taste things, and to put aside the the sweet, childlike. Uh, drinks. And when I was a child, I acted like a child, spoke like a child. Now I'm an adult. You know, St. Paul. I was you, just going to start I, quoting I know you're going to do that. So you guys are throwing St. Paul at me from one side and Ernest Hemingway. Gosh, how can I say no to that? That's, that's so, kind of the right thing. Yeah. Uh, put, put the soft drinks aside. Uh, I, I'm down to about one a week. Mm-hmm. Just as a little bit of a treat. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think it, your palate will come back. Uh, well, okay, that's that's fair enough. I can I can do that. I can do that. Uh, but um, yeah, if, if it'll I, take an effort, because I know for you especially, it's very reflexive. Go in the closet, grab yourself a soft drink. Yep, that's that's kind of how it works, and I, I do that every single night, and it's just a fantastic thing here uh, to make it all. Give it up, okay? Just give it up, dude. Uh, pull you that trigger. You can roll do that it. beautiful bean footage. We believe in you. You can yeah. do it. I so. think so too. Yeah, it's. Uh, I like this because he's telling Francis to quit, but not me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I guess it is what it is, right? Well, I think he knows that I'm kind of one that uh, really just kind of. That's just what it is. Well, I drink I'm, quite a bit. I don't drink nearly as much as my wife. Uh, soft drinks, right. not, not alcohol. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Well, so, no, I'm with that. I'm, I'm okay with all that. Uh, uh, unsweet tea and. Water. Oh, now I draw the line at that. No, no I, I, I always do. have two, but you know, it's, if tea. if if I'm gonna go without sugar, I'll be okay with it. It's yeah. it's better than water at times. Uh, I'd much rather have water over unsweet tea. I'm not big on tea, anyways. I, uh, I, well, I like peach tea. I like some of the flavored, yeah. like crystal well, stuff. That, that sugary stuff is. Yeah. Is, now, I, I, I at lunch I, I will have. I usually do take either like a, a flavored tea. Or what the vitamin water? Yeah, and those have some sugar in them. Yeah, a little, but not as much as the soft drinks do. And I'm working on it, working on it, trying to keep myself going. I drink quite a bit of water. I almost never have anything to drink with a meal other than water. That's good. So, that's good. You know, well, I, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm partially that's because of the lap band surgery. You know, the the any carbonation with food is impossible. Oh, just, oh wow. I was like, well, I'll, I'll steal from Thomas More and use the word from the, the, man, the lion from a man for all seasons. I am well rebuked, and yeah, uh, I shall uh, I shall do my best. But we need to get back to to Ernie, uh, to Hemingway. Yes, yeah, so I really so, I want to really push you about well personalize this. Well, me. I have to, and uh, and I'll I'll, go, I'll take this two different ways. One of which is 
about Hemingway the Man, which we've not really talked much about. We talked a lot about the writer and the crowd. I think we've talked about it. I mean, you a know. little bit. Uh, we, uh, if you put last episode with it, we did a little bit more of that because yeah. you know he was he had three head injuries we know of. In fact, one of one of which took place in the twenties. Uh, a skylight fell on his head. And he's got a, if you see any of his pictures after, he's got a very big old L scar on his forehead. Uh, that was from that, and he, yeah. he got a concussion from that. The other, he has a plane crash later in life, much later two in life. Them. Two of them, that's correct. Within days. Within days, in Africa. You know, talk about it. And I, I wish I had time to go so into that. So then there's, you know, kind of a treatment gap there. He's not able to get quite the effective medical attention that he needs. Uh, so, you're, I mean, you're talking alcoholism combined with traumatic brain injuries. Not a good recipe. That's correct, and that's one of the reasons that eventually he commits suicide is because he gets the diagnosis that you know he's not. It, it's not an Alzheimer's one, but it's in many respects before that you could articulate that sort of thing. And he recognizes he's never going to get any better, and he's going to live this lingering death. And that's one of the reasons uh, he had contemplated suicide a couple times before. Uh, and I think a lot of this is is traumatic related, not just physical. Those traumatic brain injuries, although that had a lot to do with it. It's one of the reasons his later works have a very different tone to them. Uh, we talked a lot about what he called the black dog male, just pattern depression. He mm-hmm. struggled with it all the time. Uh, it expresses itself sometimes in his writings. Uh, when he, but writings, I think his writings were in many respects a combat against that. It was his talent. It was his gift. He did it better than anybody else, especially once he received achieved superstardom, which really happened after A Farewell to Arms, that second mm-hmm. novel. Technically third, but it's really second. That, wow, everything after that, everybody watched him. Everything he did. And he could pretty much put out something there, because he was very good at what he did, and it would always sell. And whenever there were a couple after, the, after For Whom the Bell Tolls, which was kind of the last of his big works... He never really achieved the success he wanted to again, to that you know where it would where he was he was continuing on the upswing. Mm-hmm. He didn't do that. It was kind of flat after that. He comes back with the old man in the sea, which is a phenomenal success, but it was kind of like something else, and it was years later. Uh, although he's still writing all this time, uh, some of it's even nonfiction. He talks about bullfighting, one of his books. Oh yeah. You know? So it's a <coughs> he's he's always writing from life. And that, to circle back around to your question, what's so admirable about Hemingway? A, it is his mastery of craft. We love that here. We love mastery of craft. And the more you realize why he's revered is because he had it. He could just, and it was not effortless. He had to work with it. If you, Because he's doing this on a manual typewriter. You know, everything he did was on typewriter. And he's scratching out and making changes and doing all stuff. So you've got tons and tons and tons of every version he ever did. It's not like where it's, you know, you're on Microsoft Word and you just save as, you just delete stuff. You don't know all the backstory unless you save as different versions. You got all that with him. And you mm-hmm. realize, you know, he rewrote the beginning of uh, A Farewell to Arms like something like 50 times. Uh, hey, there's a quote I read somewhere with the, the last page of one of his books. I don't remember which one. Uh, literally, the last page. Yeah. He rewrote 39 times before he got it the way he was satisfied with it. Right. <laughs> See, and that's, that's craft. That's that's oh, that's what a I love. Determination, about it. determination to make it his own. Well, not just his own. It's from a writer's perspective. You are comp- you should anyway. This is me speaking, but Hemingway would agree with this. You are compelled to create, to produce perfection as close as you can get it to there. Big writers always tell you, writers write. That's right. You you have to do that. You 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 can't sit back. It it, it, it will eat you alive once you get inside it. Once that once that beast is awakened, 
It cannot be put to sleep again. You're compelled to push forward something. Hemingway had that. And that the better, the more he did it, that, that passion he had for it, which is lived out in his life, mind mm-hmm. you. Uh, the strenuous life. You know, he and Teddy Roosevelt, even though they were different generations, would have loved each other on that sort of thing. Yeah. Because that's, I mean, he big game hunting, fishing. He had his own yacht. He even, uh, during World War II, he's even out there uh, looking for Japanese submarines, German sub- U-boats, out in uh, off of Cuba, mm-hmm. where he's at. Uh, and he's he's even got it prepared for if he's going to board one and capture one. <laughs> Seriously, this guy he's got his stuff together, uh, except when his personal relationships, which was really weird. And I think this is a reflection of the dark side of the man, which I do not admire, of course. But it kind of it helps us explain the reality of him because he's one that lived life to the fullest. There's no question as that I, I admire that about him, along with his dedication to craft. I would. <laughs> I understand what you mean by that. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I would put it better this way because living life to the fullest, I have a hard time reconciling with four wives. Yes. Those, so those... I would say he he experienced as much life as he possibly could. Yes, he was he was an active person, extremely oh, active. Everybody knows that. That's what he had to do, uh, and which is kind of you would think would be at odds with the inherently sedentary life vocation of being a writer. He spends all this time in front of, you'd think, in front of his uh, typewriter constantly, which he did. But he's also out fishing. He's also out big game hunting. He's going to Africa. Uh, he's having enormous parties at his place in Cuba uh, where everybody comes and they stay it, over with him forever. And, they, and it's, it's, it's weekends and weeks and weeks of just a long, a long stop. Hospitality. When you look at it, him as a writer, and you look at some others as, as writers, because uh, and, and partially it's you know you can write faster now than you could when mm-hmm. you had a typewriter. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. It's just easier. Plus, typing is pretty much drummed into everybody nowadays. Even if you may not touch type, you can type fairly quickly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, when you're in front of a keyboard all the time. But it's interesting because a lot of writers, you know, they'll tell you every day x amount of hours, x amount of words doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, King writes. 363 days a year, mm-hmm. 2,000 words minimum, uh, every day but his birthday and Christmas. That's discipline. Yeah. That's but incredible he, discipline. But he also loves it, too. He, well, he, well, not always. Not yeah, that's always. Right. There, there are times. Uh, that's right. But he, he is compelled to do it. Um, that, that's one of the things I find fascinating about somebody like a Hemingway, who obviously is a real writer. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. not playing at it. And yet, he still finds time to do all of these other things. Now, I would I would guess that if you compared the output of a modern writer like King to someone like Hemingway, King dwarfs him easily. Oh, absolutely. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, Partially, that's the the dedication to, yeah. to, to writing every day. Yeah. And, and so many writers produce... You know, a yearly novel. Yes. Uh, you know, that's that's almost they I mean, publish almost on a schedule. And well, they do, yeah, many do. And that is so difficult. You've got to know your craft so well, and just really be good at it. Hemingway didn't well, you've work that way. Got to yeah. be that guy who writes a couple thousand words a day mm-hmm. every freaking day. That's right. Yeah. You cannot take time off because when you take start taking time off, a day becomes two days next week. It was three days, yeah, a couple weeks, of weeks after that. And then, it's, yeah. and then, you know, you turn some of it over to your research staff and this well, and that. And, and, but, 
mean, we didn't have any of that. He yeah, didn't, he, he did. Doing, doing it well, all himself. Yeah, unless you're a really big writer, you know, starting out, nobody has that. But, well, the, the, except the, maybe your spouse. The beauty of or your kids. The beauty yeah. of Hemingway too. Well, is, you know, before the internet, if if you wrote on a variety of subjects, you had you, to go to the library you, and travel. Yeah, travel or have a staff that could research stuff for you. Elmore Leonard had a couple of people that worked for him, and you know, he could they could research. Cuba at the turn of the century for him. Right. Yeah, yeah. Now that now that's all not necessary. But of course, didn't have to pay him as much then as you know, relatively yeah. speaking. Yeah. yeah. But you know, in many respects, Hemingway, he's a he's writing from life, from his own life experience. But once he's got his first two books done, uh, Sun Also Rises and Farewell to Arms, they're revenue generating. He never probably never had to work a day in his life after that if he didn't want to. Because he is a mega success, he's always chasing that next big thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and he started writing. At a time that was an unforeseen boom, mm-hmm. movies. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we didn't even talk about that because all of his, you know, everything he ever wrote has been made into multiple movies. Right. And many now he did not many, see some of that money. Because, he didn't see some of that. Yeah, because uh, it, you know, movies didn't start doing him until he was, it was later in life as well. That's right. But you know, that was a financial boom. But most of his novels were made into motion pictures during his lifetime, at least once. Uh, uh, because he dies in 1960, right? And the 50s is when most of those, because they realize, you know, there's some bankability here, right? Uh, yeah. But those. he would have been living well off before then, long before that. Time. That's correct. Yeah. yeah, because he writes these in the 20s. By the time he's in the 30s, he can do what he wants to. Yeah. But he can, he's compelled to write. He also wants to be a war correspondent. That's why he goes to Spain. That's where from whom the bell tolls come from. Because he wants to be there where this stuff is going on. He was drawn to it. Of course, he spent some time in Spain during the bullfights. Spanish Civil War is fascinating, if for no other reason than the impact on certain groups of people that it had in this country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On the draw that it was. You know, it happened during a time when the country was still struggling with the socialism versus capitalism debate. And socialism had not yet lost, although it seems like it never fully loses. Right. Um, a discussion for another day. A discussion for another day. Uh, and but you know it's time when the Soviet Union was had, had turned a lot of things around from the abject poverty that ninety nine percent of the country had. Mm-hmm. Now it was just ninety percent of the country. So you know, I mean, it wasn't as bad. It, you know, they were doing things. They were producing products for the people and so on, and right. they looked like a juggernaut. Uh, and so you you were seeing socialism expand into other places. Yeah, there was an ascendancy uh, in China to, and, to it, yeah. and into Spain. And Spain, of course, you know, the bullfights and its history with the, uh, you know, the, the conquest in America, it had a romantic aspect to it. Very much so, yeah. So and Hemingway it was, was a draw for something like that. Hemingway was very much a romantic. Yeah. So Spain, so. It, it had, that Spain, yeah. Civil War has, it's an interesting subject. Yeah, and that's kind of one of the things that leads to the demise of his second marriage and the rise of his third, because his third wife, Martha Gellhorn, she was a war correspondent, and they became competitors. See, the problem is, Hemingway's traveling all over the world in different places like this, and this is how he ends up getting in trouble, because he's always looking for that first next new thing. Well, that, he can't keep it in his pants? Well, that's part of it, too. Uh, because if you look back at his life, you study it very, very closely, his first wife really was a gem. She really was... Uh, they, they, they have one child together... Uh, and she, and, uh, you know, she's the one, Hadley Richardson, that um, Sun Also Rises, she retains the rights to it. Uh, so that way she would never have to be without. He loved all of his wives even after he decided to move on. They didn't. They didn't want to. They didn't want to leave him. Hadley, just, she never remarried, I don't believe. 
and it became a very a painful thing. But he'd already started with, you know, his second wife, Pauline, who was actually very, very good to him. She took care of him in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were a great match, but uh, Martha Gellhorn was, in many respects, she was just like this lightning in a bottle that he's, you know, attracted to. Next thing you know, he's having sex with her, and well, that's it. You know, it's over with. Now, she's all the thing. Trouble is, they were so competitive with each other, it couldn't last. There's yeah. just no way it would last. His last wife, Mary Welsh... Really, they really had a good relationship. They fought like cats and dogs. I think they all did. Hemingway was just that way. And but she would give him for what she, you know, she, they stayed together, uh, and she would care for him as he got older and more forgetful, and the illness came on. Uh, she would be just as much of a hospita- hospitality person for them because people were drawn to Hemingway at this point later in his life. Yeah. You know, people come to stay for weeks, and they go out on boat trips together, and you know they're fishing or they're hunting or they're doing stuff like that. She was able to keep up with all that. And uh, all of his wives had a, you know, those that were hurt by him, and I guess they all were because, you know, his his, la- his last one, Mary, you know, she's the one who finds him after he commits suicide. And she's the guardian of his legacy. A movable feast would not have been published without her. Right. right. So there's a lot of things that go in. They're all guardians of that. Uh, he had difficult relationships with his children. He loved them all, uh, but, you know, the, there are several of them that will still talk about it later. You know, he wasn't the best dad. He's all he's he's out chasing he's out chasing fish or he's chasing tail of another type, and it, it it's just who he was. They kind of get that. Uh, that's not what's admirable about uh, admirable about Hemingway. I want to make sure I'm clear on that. But the fact that he he just didn't sit still. Some of that he was compelled to do by who he was. But there's a romantic attraction to that. I think for those we, of us we've that talked don't about live things, that life, yeah, we've talked about the. Finding the way to be a person of thought and a person of action. Oh, yeah. He's, he's by definition that. Absolutely. He, he, because he can't write without thought, but he's also a person of action as well. In many respects, he's he living. is one of the archetypes for doing both uh, with no limits. There Maybe is no normal life, Wyatt. There's just that's life. Right, that's right. Just get out there and live it. Grab that spirited actress. From the great actress. sage and philosopher. Yeah, grab that spirited actress and make her your own. Mm-hmm. Well, that's right. I mean, I, well, you I, know, that's something Hemingway would say. And I think that's important for listeners to recognize. You know, we've often talked about flawed people as yeah. having something uh, worth knowing about, yeah. if not admiring. Very much so. And part of that's a recognition that we are all flawed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and trying to recognize what is good while recognizing the flaws. I mean, we, when we talked about John Wayne, we recognized uh, some of the flaws that uh, he, he later came to re- regret in life, and yet he is still known for some of those flaws, unfortunately. Uh, and I think that's a, a good thing to remember to remind people that what you believe at one point in life or what you do at one point in life should not be the sole defining characteristic of the rest of your life. Well, that's right. I mean, uh, yeah, a, with the exception of certain certain people and things. Yes, we can solely and 100% always define Hitler by the Holocaust. <laughs> no will. problem. Always will, that's right. Uh, you know, well, was, the Cultural yeah. Revolution and yeah. Mao. No problem. Yeah. You know, but not everybody rises to that level of... Yeah, because Hemingway was both a genius of unparalleled uh, levels as well as a deeply flawed person personally. Yeah. Uh, he uh, and some of this I th- I do believe and uh, Ken Burns really explores this very well in the last episode of this series uh, is the fact that his his mental illness that he was experiencing probably due to the brain injuries he's experienced caused him to be very very awful 
not just to his wives, but to many others that yeah. he would know at times. He was also very, very generous. His children talk about that. He could be the most generous person out there, but he could also be a son of a bitch. <laughs> and I think we judge him too harshly to, rec- uh, to forget the fact that um, there are reasons for that that are not always in his, I don't want to say control, because what comes out of your mouth is always in your control. But he's there are mitigating circumstances. It's complicated, as Trevor Slattery. Trevor would say. Slattery hasn't appeared in a few episodes. That's right. So he didn't bring it back. back. Trevor, come back. Ask. Compl- hey, 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 it's hey, complicated. It's complicated. That's complicated. That's right. Good stuff, guys. Good stuff. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's wrap this bad boy up, and uh, and uh, we could talk so much more about the man and about yeah. his works. But it, it, read the man. Much, read it. It's, yeah. it's, it's he's he's well worth uh, he's well worth knowing, and so much of him is in those books. I'm going to have to find that Ken Burns thing then. Is is that on uh, uh, Netflix yet or anything? Oh, no, or? it hasn't made it that way. Uh, you get your PBS app. It's usually there. You can find it today. Okay, okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, you, can, you can find the, it out there. Yeah, I hardly ever watch anything on broadcast anymore. Yeah. But you got me hooked now. I mean, you I'm need, to, you need to know this man. You need to know him very, very well. And it's it. so good. The picture. You know, we know we love Ken Burns. Uh, and uh, this was one that I just, uh, I was already huge into him anyway. Uh, I didn't, I, nothing that they had about it was a surprise. But the depth that they go into about in the in just the detail, uh, I, I know him far better now because of that, and he is somebody that we should definitely know. If you can find that Ken Burns documentary, pour yourself a glass of some adult beverage, yeah. sit down if and you, enjoy it. Yeah, if you want to understand American arts, that's correct. Writers, Hemingway is somebody that's got to be part of that. Study. You got to be. You got to be. If part there could be study. only one, he'd be my choice. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, there Faulkner, Twain. We talked about that. There's a lot of people just, but Hemingway's one of those giants that you've got to. If you want to understand American arts, you got it. You, just, letters, you just you got have to, to be able to do that. That's just the way this, cool. the way this bad boy rolls. So, Francis, what's up next? You're in charge next time, sir. Watch out, buddies. Uh-oh. Watch out. You I'm in charge. Have, you have a thought. I have a thought. That's it. Well, how about that? We no. must respect Robert's authority. authority. That's right. Exactly. Because we're going to do, we've been talking about this since one of our earliest times. And we never have gotten around to it until now. Finally, it's getting on the schedule. Alternate history. And all, that is my thing. That's right. Because you've read all, not not all, because my God, there's so many. But you've read so many of them. Harry Turtledove is one that I know, and it's one that you, sh- you know, listeners, you should know. But there's so much around alternate history. We all, we often sit around saying, you know, what if this had happened differently? I mean, we talk about that all the time. The alternate history bo- books take that and run with it and find out the exact consequences of what that really means. And wow, that's a fascinating study. So we're going to talk about that next time, folks. You're going to love it. Hope you enjoyed another pointless discussion of eternal questions. Remember, new episodes publish every Friday at noon Eastern. Spread the word. We're on all the major podcast platforms. And leave us a comment or review because that helps others find us. We're on Instagram, Twitter, as well as our website, snakesandotters.com. I'm Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Join us next week, same snake time, same otter channel.